Hi, friends. Today on the Successful-ish podcast, we're talking to a favorite past guest, Ralph Cooper. You may remember our last conversation on entrepreneurship. And as a serial entrepreneur, one of the industries that Ralph is involved in is the world of crypto and blockchain and NFTs. So today we're talking a little bit about all these things, answering questions like, what exactly is an NFT? How does the blockchain work? What is the future of the metaverse? And is the idea of a virtual utopia even plausible? As always, we try to keep our conversations uninterrupted because we like it that way. If you would like to help keep it that way, you can support this podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash successfulish slash support. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successful-ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of see. I'm successful-ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieved. Successful-ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Successful-ish. I'm Sarah Michelle, and I'm excited today to bring back one of our favorite guests, Ralph Cooper, who is going to be talking today about NFTs. So you might remember in earlier episode, we talked about entrepreneurship, awesome conversation, highly recommend going back to listen to it. Um, but Ralph is a lifelong entrepreneur. He's currently building Web3 projects, and he is all of the, I mean, there's so much entrepreneurship and just so much that he does, but one of the ways that Ralph entrepreneurs, if we can make that a verb, uh, is in crypto and blockchain and NFTs and all those kinds of fun buzzwords um, and techie stuff that I personally don't understand, but I know are becoming more of a part of the culture and more of a part of what businesses need to know. So today he is here to attempt to explain it to us. Um, and I feel like the success metric will be that if I can understand it at the end of this conversation, I feel like anyone can understand it. Uh, I quite honestly, I know that NFTs have been around for a while. I know Bitcoin and crypto and all of that have been around. And I, I knew the buzzwords, but I had never heard of an NFT. And I know it's been around for a bit. And the first time I heard about it was from a client who asked me to shift all of their content towards NFTs. I thought it was a marketing acronym. I had no idea what it was, um, but I assumed it was marketing and I'm pretty good at bullshitting my way through anything that I can learn. And so I'm like, yeah, I can write 24 blogs on NFTs. And it opened up a whole world that I just had no concept of. Um, so I reached out to a friend who attempted to explain it to me. And so now I feel like I have maybe a preschool level of understanding on this. Um, so Ralph, thank you for being here. And uh, I know this is kind of your playground. So I'm excited to get a little more education on this. But before we jump in, what is something that you have failed at or attempted since the last time we talked? Because I know it's been a minute. Um, I, I honestly don't remember what I said the last time, but I wouldn't be shocked if it was the exact same thing. I, I keep failing in being realistic with expectations, communication, and deadlines. I'm a natural optimist, so I will tell you, oh, yeah, I can make that happen in a week. 
And then the week goes by and I'm like, oh, dang, the week is over. And I thought I would have time to do this and I didn't. And so things get delayed. And so I'm I'm trying different, different strategies to like double my times. When I think it takes a week, I'll say two and that sort of thing. But um, that's probably what I would call out on myself as the thing that I failed the most and most severely with. <laughs> I think that probably was the same thing that you said last time. That I wouldn't familiar. be shocked. You're right. <laughs> like it, it probably was either that or communication with my wife or something like that. Like, and they kind of go hand in hand. It's all the same thing of like optimism and missing expectations of someone else because of poor communication ultimately. So all same ballpark. Well, at least you have self-awareness. You have that going for you. So yeah. tell, us, tell us a little bit. I know we sort of talked about your bio and your story and stuff on our last conversation, but tell us about your involvement in the NFT world and sort of what got you interested in this world and what you do in the space currently. Okay. So um, let's zoom out a bit because that will set the stage nicely for how this develops. So Bitcoin has been around for actually like 12 or 13 years at this point. So like crypto, though people keep calling it like a trend or a fade or whatever, it's been around for over a decade. And the adoption in the last few years has just been massive with, with like Tesla, um, Square, PayPal. Like no one can say that Bitcoin is like this little nerdy niche thing it's mainstream has been reached effectively whether people realize it or use it everyone knows what it is and everyone probably has an account somewhere whether venmo or cash app where you could easily access crypto um so from crypto the we have different generations of crypto the first generation is bitcoin it was simply like meant to be like a decentralized way so decentralized meaning there is no central authority. It's spread across different, what we call nodes, to then um, process transactions. So I'm sending something to you and rewrite it in a format that everyone else can verify that I send it to you. So everyone knows that what you own is what you own because I transferred it to you. So like the, the proof of ownership is through the transactions. Um, that's the first generation crypto. The second generation crypto, which is where NFTs come in is, when a guy called Vitalik Buterin, a Canadian-Russian-ish person who um, thought that Bitcoin is cool, but what if I want to send something else? Or what if I want it to be smarter? Like, say, I send you something and now the, the decentralized platform would automatically do something else with it. Or what if I want to have a parallel currency? I don't just need Bitcoin. I want to have like my company internal currency that also should be processed the same way. I don't want to launch a new blockchain. I want to use what's already there. So what he came up with is the concept of smart contracts, which is the concept of what I just described, where you send things, you do things in the blockchain and things react to each other. So that would mean if we have two different currencies, say we have Bitcoin and Ethereum, if I send you Bitcoin, you would automatically send me Ethereum back in a decentralized manner where I don't have to trust you that you will keep your word because a smart contract in the blockchain would ensure that we both do what we said we would do. That's the inherent concept of smart contracts. Now, 
the implications of that we experience these days because NFTs came about in 2017 um, simply as a smart contract that says, hey, you can own this thing. Like we, we have a token. A token is just anything in the blockchain. So like Bitcoin is a token. Ethereum is a token. Any cryptocurrency is what you could ultimately classify as a token that can be moved around. So in 2017, a company called Lava Labs decided to come up with a token that also references in their smart contract an image file. Well, it, it referenced the image file in the blockchain itself. So it had to be relatively small because we have to basically move this around every time we do anything. So if I send you one of these, it's all included. It's not that there's some, some external image or so that we reference, but it's all on chain is what we call it. Um, this first NFT was the CryptoPunks, which are quite popular to this day. Um, and they're pretty expensive too, because they are the first ones. So like there's a lot of um, internet history that comes with them. But that was in 2017. And then there were a couple of other NFTs like CryptoKitties and um, that slowly started, but it wasn't until like last year in March or April. I'm, I'm not sure about any of these dates, by the way. So don't quote me on those. Those are just like vaguely remember reading this somewhere. But like um, sometime early last year, um, various NFTs came out and they started to attract the broader market in part because the industry just developed further. So like, at first, when you wanted an NFT, there was no nice website to just go on to and do anything. It was all very techy, very weird, very much like nerd type stuff, like ordinary people had no chance of knowing what they were doing there. So last year, however, numerous of these platforms developed to a point where it was relatively easy. Suddenly, someone who has no technical knowledge can do that too, like one of these platforms being OpenSea, which is the biggest um, most popular NFT marketplace out there. And so an NFT at this point is essentially a token. So it's something you own and it usually is attached to uh, something external, like a media file. It could be a video, an image or anything really. But the NFT represents the ownership of that item. And legally speaking, it's fairly complicated because IP laws are not at all aligned with blockchain technologies and companies are not sure what to make of it either. So like CryptoPunks, in fact, doesn't say that you own the CryptoPunk, you just have the usage rights for them through the NFT, whereas other collections say, oh, you own the whole thing. So there's a bit of like a gray, muddy area when it comes to IP laws. And that's to be figured out, really. It's a very new field. There's a lot of new stuff coming, and we haven't quite settled the whole IP debate across the board. Maybe we never will. Like, it's it's not set to that, that it all will be the same. Maybe some MNFTs will give you full ownership and some others won't. But ultimately, the NFT itself is an ownership token over a, a, an ID, ultimately, and that ID can be represented by like an image or something else. Um, so that's the basics of what an NFT is. Um, 
like some people say it's like art collections or images or so. And that is a common use case, but that's not by far the only use case. You have NFTs, for example, LinkStyle, which is a, an NFT that represents membership benefits in an organization that tries to buy a golf club. So ultimately, you are trying to virtualize and put it in the blockchain that people can buy their own golf club. That's the ultimate idea behind it. Again, the legalities are not quite caught up to that reality yet. So it, when you look at those kinds of projects, it's always very, legally speaking, uh, it's it's it always sounds like weird because they're not trying to step into security laws like you don't want to upset the sec and sell unregistered securities and those kinds of things so the the language is sometimes a little bit weird but that's always because there is a legal body that just has not caught up to blockchain um but as far as that goes my involvement with it is that last year like right around the time when we talked last um a, a business partner of mine started working for a blockchain company. And I had been involved with crypto basically since 2016. Like it, it was right around the first hype of Bitcoin where like I was like one of the first who bought and like got rich of it or anything. I was like following the first hype and I bought when it wasn't so profitable. So I didn't like make any, like I didn't lose much money either. I didn't make any either. So it was just like, I was there and I thought it was very interesting, like the concept, et cetera. And then I thought it died or wasn't relevant anymore because like it just got no traction in, in mainstream until Elon Musk and Tesla were like, oh yeah, let's buy 50 million of Bitcoin. And I was like, okay, this is not disappearing. This is, this is here to stay. Meanwhile, my business partner says, oh yeah, I'm working for this blockchain company though that does digital horse racing with NFTs. And I was like, like NFTs, what even is that? So I, when I first looked at it, I was like, this is insane. Like, why would I spend $2,000 for something like this? Like, there's no value behind it or so. So it was quite bewildering to, to look at NFTs. But as I kept looking at it here and there, I was like, there's something deeper behind it. Like, like sure, you can buy like a random NFT for 2000 or whatever, and you may think it's worthless. Um, but value really comes from what people are willing to pay for it and what ultimately stands behind it. And so NFTs, got, they got to me because there's a deeper sense of ownership there that is key of what we characterize Web3 to, Web to be. So Web2 is, Web1 essentially is, first version of internet, you had like texts. So like you go on a website and you read a text and maybe there's an image and that's fancy. So web two was when we had like interactive stuff like Facebook. Facebook is like the prime example of web two or YouTube. Like you have like these platforms where you, where you can do stuff, you can click, you can see things, you can interact with us. Social media is by, by far like a web two product. Um, and Web3, though not officially defined by anyone, but it's the collective understanding that Web2 meant that there is a centralized entity that controls it. So if Twitter blocks you, you're out of luck because Twitter hates you for whatever reason, so you can't do anything. Web3 says, 
let's not have a Twitter. Let's have a decentralized thing that cannot be controlled by a single person or CEO or whatever. But let's make this decentralized. Let's have it where, like, actually the ownership is not so centralized. Um, and NFTs are like the beginning of that mindset because people were like, we like, I can own this image. I can own this thing. I can own a golf course with us together. Um, and all of that prompted me to, to go like, okay, there's a lot of potential here and it's a really neat intersection of who I am personally, because I care about tech, I care about finance and I care about economies and like how people operate, like philosophical aspects and all that. And NFTs are a nice intersection because they're very technical, but they are also involving a lot of like group dynamic and like market behavior because markets go up and down and people do things based on what's happening outside of their influence. And so NFTs fit quite neatly with that. And so to answer, after going all around the lake with this, I can answer your initial question. I am involved in two companies now doing Web3 stuff. One is an NFT analytics tool, which is supposed to help an investor make smart decisions over what NFT to buy, when, and sell, when, and all those kinds of things. And the other is a very simple um, NFT card trading game where you essentially collect cards, kind of like you would in high school or whatever, and then you play against each other. So like you compare like horsepower of your cars and whoever has the highest horsepower wins. And then you lose your NFTs and you gain some NFTs. And then there's there's a lot more deeper dynamics that we develop with that, but that's the foundational idea. And so, yeah, that's my current involvement with NFTs and the story of how it came about. Okay, I'm going to try to digest all of that. And I guess one of the questions that immediately comes out of that is just, who is the typical consumer? Because I think the way that I understand NFTs, I sort of look at it like an art collection as well, or like Pokemon cards was how I looked at it. Of That was just where my brain went of, okay, someone who perceives value in this, and then they're hanging out with other people who perceive value and they're trading them around. Um, and I don't know if that is the only person who's using it, if it's like a status symbol. I know a lot of businesses are using it for brand engagement. So, and I, and I know that the, the whole world of crypto, blockchain, NFTs, it's becoming more mainstream, but I don't feel like it is as mainstream as cash and credit or as other things where literally everyone is using it. So how would you describe the typical consumer base that is currently using NFTs? And the second part of that question would be, do you think that it will remain in that user base? Or do you think that this is just the intro and it will eventually be mainstream? Um, I think it will be mainstream. And I don't, so it's a, it's a shift of mindset. It's sort of like, Imagine 1995 or even earlier than that. And someone says, yeah, we don't need a fax machine. We can send these electronic letters to each other, like emails. Like that was a very foundational thing that changed the way people interacted with each other. Um, 
crypto and blockchain in general is doing the exact same. It's introducing a very new way to do things together. And what makes blockchain very powerful is it's decentral. So there is no central entity, but also it's connected. So in other words, the reason brands are into it so much is because um, if you own an NFT, the person who started that collection or who that who is the initiator of that NFT can see, well, in fact, everyone can see that you own that NFT without necessarily knowing who you are. So you have an address, a blockchain address. There is no requirement or any way to require a personal connection between you and that address. So that makes it very appealing for people that are privacy conscious because just because you have an address, like, so what? That You can always say it's not yours. No one can prove that that address is yours. Um, but everyone can see that address and everyone can see what happens with that address. So for a brand, that's quite powerful because if you buy their NFT, now they have a connection to you through the blockchain. And that connection can manifest in various ways. So for example, now a brand, people that has, say a brand has an NFT collection and they people buy it. If the brand wanted to reward the people who buy that NFT, they can send you like anything that can be sent to the blockchain. They can they could send you almost literal cash. Now, hear me, they're not doing that because of security laws and all the things that I said before, like it's really not at a point where like you can just do whatever, but you can provide um, benefits to people. You can, you can tell them, you can send them for one tokens, utility tokens of sorts or so. You can, you can interact with them in ways that you couldn't before. Another example, other than sending tokens, would be you could have your website and you can say on this part of the website, only people who own this NFT can access. Now you created like a sort of community where brands can talk or interact with their holders and their clients ultimately in very new and interesting ways. Um, because before that, that wasn't so easy i mean you were like on email lists and whatever but it was never really like essential or anything where like you had control over that part um so the connection between brand and consumer is a very interesting one because brands can use that to include their users like talk about like um surveys and uh, asking their users what do they want now you have like a way to collect feedback from people that like definitely bought your NFT. And then you can also send them like a, a discount over 30% over some other item in their store. Like Adidas was doing that. They had like an NFT collection that they sold and they gave like, I think 15% or like some definite financial benefit to the holders of the NFT. Um, now, the, the next part beyond that is, and this edges into another topic that's very Web3, but it's a whole lot less defined, which is the metaverse. And the metaverse and the reason NFTs got really popular last year too is because Facebook changed its name to meta to embrace the metaverse. And the metaverse is just a loose definition of like an environment where it's decentralized 
and we can like you and I, we talk through Zoom now and you see a beautiful calm background that Zoom provides for me in my boring co-working space. So in the metaverse, we could be walking along the beach in some virtual reality with our characters. Now, of course, we aren't there yet. And that's why the metaverse is like, it's more of a future vision than like a concrete implementation of anything because we aren't there yet. We don't really have the headsets. We don't really have like the glasses and all the things to make it an experience like that. But ultimately that's what it's supposed to be like. And people are like, we do not want it to be what Web3, what Web2 was, where some central entity owns all this stuff. So now you have like platforms like Sandbox and Decentraland pop out who say, you can own a piece of land in our environment. And so with that ownership, which we do through an NFT, you are now part of this. This is not a centralized entity and we just take your stuff away, but you own this. You are part of this. And that creates a new level of freedom and possibilities where you could have like virtual concerts, virtual anything, any sort of gathering could be virtual as well and allow people to have this sort of experience regardless of place. Like think of it in terms of like, if you wanted to host a, a conference, you could do that and you can include people from the other side of the world and it would be a decent experience for them as it's, at least that's the idea behind it. The reality hasn't caught up with it quite yet, but that's ultimately where all of this is trying to head to, if that makes sense. So I'm a little curious just about this decentralization aspect of it, because without any person running it, like I, I assume that someone had to create it, like someone somewhere had to create the space for this. So how, how does that play into, can the creator at any point say, I don't want a metaverse anymore and shut it down. And secondly, just historically looking at anarchy settings, what is that dynamic like of people potentially all over the world coming into this space with their own stubborn vision of what they think it should look like and coming in with the ownership and ability to dictate whatever rules or not rules that they want? Right. So the the way it's it's supposed to be and the way things are heading is it's the concept of a DAO. Have you ever heard the term DAO? It's another web-free term that stands for Decentral Autonomous Organization. So it's this idea that we have a smart contract and every member of this group can vote on stuff. So we can vote on whether or not we want to adopt a new thing. And like Ethereum, the second biggest cryptocurrency in network, um, has that implemented in ways for its, itself. So like if people want to upgrade Ethereum and do new things with it, like there's, blockchain is always evolving and, and adding new things, changing things a little bit, getting better. It's always improving. And the way you do that with a decentralized system is to give everyone who holds a stake in this voting power. So you have these decentralized structures that allow you to vote on stuff. When you vote on stuff, 
then it, it, the idea is that the majority of everyone involved will follow suit and, and follow this vote. Now, naturally, we are all human and there is never ever a perfect setup because we're just not at that point yet. So like if you go on Sandbox or Decentraland, you're of course accessing servers that are most likely hosted by Google, Facebook, Amazon, or someone with a central authority who could just pull the plug and you're offline. So naturally, it's we are not at a state yet, and we I would assume never can really get there truly, where it's so decentralized that no individual could ever like mess with it. That's probably utopia, but um, I'm not ruling it out entirely. However, um, the idea is always to make it so that it's least likely to cause any harm, so that it that. There is, say, like a committee that follows the members' voting process and implements it in a real-world structure and company. So, like all, most of these projects, actually have real-world companies that are like responsible for it and run the show. And and these companies commit themselves to follow what the majority of people vote for in these um, in these processes where you vote for stuff. So, in terms of like what that will look like or could look like and where we are at it's it's a it's a hybrid model and it probably always will be because there there will always be a physical element to it where not everyone can decentrally have equal access to time and space and money of like real real world items and so um there is some level of trust involved with the with the people who run the show, and that's another element in Web three that's very important to um, to remove for one the central entity that runs stuff, but also to have the trust in whoever does have a say in things, because you ultimately end up with group dynamics where, like Elon Musk, tweets a picture of a dog, and now Dogecoin shoots up for no good reason, just because people are like hurt people and they follow the leader. So it's never ever perfect, but the idea is to make it a whole lot more level grounded than Web2 is where Twitter just decides to ban you for whatever, you know. So what's interesting to me, and I, I have such a, just an outside tertiary perspective on this. So feel free to cut me off if I'm misunderstanding anything, but what is interesting to me is that it's almost like there was this discontentment with what existed in reality. And so someone decided to start over virtually and kind of play God and create this new universe where everyone shows up, in which case I'm a little curious of how that's going to work. Because I think unless you're creating a new reality that doesn't involve humans at all, I don't see how there's going to be a world that doesn't eventually carry over all the same problems and dynamics and frustrations that currently exist. And I also feel like this idea of you know, ownership and decentralization. Like I, I can understand those aspects, but I also feel like I I'm missing why I need to go to a virtual world to get that and why I can't take advantage of, you know, I, there's plenty of things that I can have ownership of in reality. And there's plenty of ways that I have autonomy in reality. I can say what I want to say. I can 
buy what I want to buy as long as I have the money for it. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm missing the utopian aspect of recreating what already exists. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, no, I'm actually not too far away from where you stand on that. Like some people believe that like ultimately humans don't have to work anymore because some smart contract will just redistribute all resources on earth properly. And, you know, like that's that sort of idea. And I'm with you, like humans are flawed beings. So there will always be a problem with anything that humans touch. And we will never completely take out the manual element of some kind. Um, now, what? What, what Web3 and decentralization does solve, however, is an element of trust between parties where there cannot be trust. Good example is, um, in fact, if you look at areas in the world where there is no or little trust in the public system. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. And like some people criticize it for it, but they also said, well, people aren't trusting our banking. We, in fact, don't have our own banking. We use the US dollar because we have nothing better. So we might as well use Bitcoin because Bitcoin at least has no central um, entity. And we are not so depending on whatever um, Jerome Powell of the Fed decides to do and how that affects us over here just because Wall Street messes up and now the dollar goes down and whatever, you know, like there's an, there's an element where people draw a benefit from it similar in like um, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, you don't have a public structure that people are willing to trust, or at least there is a good bit of hesitation to trust the Taliban and their um, whatever they use for banking and such. So for ordinary people, how do you trade in a currency that's like crumbling? Turkey, similar game, or most recently, Russia and Ukraine. How would you do business between a Ukrainian and a Russian company when your governments are so at odds with each other? And now there's the, a decentralized currency that solves this trust issue because it's not it's not depending on those. Like, yes, it will go up and down based on demand and those kinds of things. There is market dynamic there, but it's not quite the same as you have with like the Russian currency and the US dollar, which are clearly uh, following political agendas more than anything else. But more so to the point of, of currencies, especially through COVID, we have seen governments internationally like handing out money like crazy. I mean, if you look at inflation worldwide, it's a mess. It's not just the US, it's everywhere, like or at least the West. I'm not saying everywhere, but like in the West, Europe, America, Canada, it's it's just bad. Real estate is really expensive. Regular prices are going up and governments don't know what to do because economies aren't catching up so quickly. And so to me, decentralized currencies are a great way to um, to not be caught in that because digital currencies aren't attached to inflation the same way. They do react some, of course they do, humans react. So like the Fed says we raise interest rates, suddenly loans get more, get more expensive, people buy fewer houses, fewer houses, fewer resources, fewer upgrades, you know, like it trickles down to the individual where the person who would have built a new house is now not spending money at a restaurant, you know, like, economies just have these chain reactions and so cryptocurrencies aren't exempt from that but at the same time um they also aren't immediately attached to it either because 
just because one country decides to do a thing or so, that doesn't mean that the worldwide decentral infrastructure reacts the same way. Now, the same can be applied to cryptocurrency, to, to um, NFTs and tokens that go beyond um, cryptocurrencies. Like, for example, a good example of where NFTs are used in a way that is fascinating to me is in items where you have certificates. So like collection items primarily, but also like luxury goods. If you own like a luxury like chain or something, like who certifies that this is the real deal? Um, you can fake like any printed certificate and such. So to have an NFT that is originated from the, the creator of the necklace chain or whatever, then you now have an additional way to prove that you are the rightful owner of this item. Um, similar with like real estate, there was a first real estate purchase with an NFT. And of course, it's, I mean, it's mostly playing around right now because it's obviously not the norm yet. But just imagine if you if you cut out all these middle pieces and you can own your house with an NFT that is decentrally stored. Now you open the door for someone from a country where it might be significantly harder to have access to such markets to buy things. Now you have possibilities where like worldwide invention and investments can happen because you're not going the traditional route. For some random person from, I don't know, Indonesia to invest in an American company is quite difficult. Um, like and we're not talking stock market, but like for with crypto, it's no more expensive than it would be for like your neighbor to do that. So you you essentially you you speed up globalization in a way, allow for capital flow in an international way, and that cap capital will translate into um, inventions and new things, which we often refer to as like the metaverse. Which, to your point, I'm not convinced either that, like, uh, instead of us doing a Zoom call, walking at the virtual beach of some virtual city is, is this much better experience. Um, however, I'm sure it was difficult for the 60-year-old to, to imagine that you don't need a fax machine to send a, a letter to someone else that has legal standing, you know? Like, it, it's... Well, what, and I... I also, one thing about um, just thinking about the idea of going to a virtual meeting. Uh, so I was just watching a video that my uncle sent me and my mom went to visit her brother and he has like the VR goggles or whatever. And it it's hilarious watching people do virtual stuff. I don't know if you saw the video that was going around um, social media, someone videoed, I think it was a roommate that was on a virtual date. And he's just like with his goggles, he's cheersing and he's kissing the air. And just from the outside, it looks ridiculous. Um, but my mom did these different virtual activities and then she was nauseous for like a good <laughs> while afterwards, because sometimes when you're in that virtual reality space and you're moving around, like you can get, um, I don't even want virtual sick. I don't even know if there's a name for it. Um, so I like that dynamic makes it interesting to me to think about, like, I don't know if I could pace a virtual beach while having this conversation with you. I feel like I'd be tripping over dogs and walking into furniture and like getting motion sickness. Right. 
I, yeah, I, I know there's a lot that goes into it. And whether, like, I feel like the metaverse and this, this idea that we walk around in a virtual world is mostly a placeholder for, we don't even know yet, you know, like we have, it's like internet in 1997. Who would have thought that there's such a thing as Airbnb or Uber or, you know, like all these, these things in web two, where we are like, these are really useful additions to our life. Zoom. Who would have thought that you can get a camera so small that it fits into you the screen of your MacBook to then have a conversation with someone else? Try to tell that someone in 1990, you know, like that's just, we don't really quite know yet where the journey is going. And um, we have these different perceptions and ideas of where things are heading, but ultimately we just don't know. Well, I'm um, curious your perspective slash speculation, because I think what's really interesting about technology is that like any tool or resource, it can be used for good or evil, and it all depends on the person using it. And I think I think about technology like um, Web2, to use my new fancy vocabulary that I'm learning on this conversation, uh, things like Web2, things like using Facebook or Instagram, social media, Zoom, there's all these technologies that theoretically allow me to be closer to people all over the world. You know, I we could be mm-hmm. having this conversation even when you still lived in Germany, which is really cool. I can have conversations with people around the world through Facebook. I have all these relationships with people that I wouldn't have been able to manage before because of that connection. At the same time, there's also studies showing about that people are losing their ability to form relationships and connections because we don't have in-person connections anymore. Everything is separated. And especially going through, you know, a couple of years of COVID and quarantine, it dramatically changed people's social skills and abilities to connect. So Theoretically, having this metaverse, this globalization, there's a really cool aspect to being able to actually hang out with people, quote, air quote, hang out with people all over the world that could bring us closer. But there's also an aspect that pulls us even further out of what limited reality we're already in. So I'm curious your perspective, what you think that's going to do to human relationships. I'm actually going to quote someone I'm not a big fan of at all, which is Mark Zuckerberg. But he said, the metaverse is not trying to get you to spend more time with technology, but make the time that you do spend already with technology more meaningful. And I think that's a quite a good way to put that because it's not meant to make you not leave the house ever again. You know, like that's that's not the idea. It's more meant like, kind of like what you and I do now. How could we have this more meaningful also? Now, again, it's a very vague vision and there's a lot of things that we don't really know yet. Um, but ultimately, like, as I was saying, the metaverse and Web3 is all relatively vague. What the, the core elements people care about is ownership because ownership was, if you want to speak in like a populist kind of tone, was taken away from us with Web2. We gave ownership to Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon, and so on. If they decide to cut you out, you're out. There's no way to get back in, you know. Now, naturally, that doesn't happen to a whole lot of people because they want to make money off you too. But ultimately, they could. Like if you're blacklisted on certain profiles and whatever, you're done. Whereas Web3 says, 
yeah, let's not do that. Let's not give these companies all this power and make sure that Jeff Bezos makes however much more than the lowest paid person at Amazon, you know, like let's make this a little bit fairer and level the ground, which is what the decentralization does. And then the aspect that floats around with that is like this like utopianistic idea of how we can interact with each other um, which is just technological advancements. And this is where like, I would differ from Facebook and what they envision, because Facebook, of course, wants you to use their products to do all these wonderful things. Like Facebook isn't so interested in decentralization. They want you to have all the fancy new stuff, but mostly with them in the middle and them benefiting from it, which is like fine, a company always wants that. But the Web3 thought is like, yeah, let's try not to do that. So if you talk to like NFT people, they typically aren't big fans of Facebook and they don't really care about Facebook's metaverse advances either because Facebook is trying to utilize it for their own benefit, whereas the real spirit of Web3 is more like, let's make this not about a single company. So what happens to conflict in a decentralized space like that without a mediator? Because I think that it's really interesting, particularly lately, um, you know, all the court cases and the issues with Facebook and misinformation and censorship and all these um, buzzwords. I know Facebook has been all over the radar with it. Um, Spotify is in the news right now. People trying to shut down Spotify because they're airing Joe Rogan and his thoughts. And it's a very, um, it's an interesting discussion. And I know, I think Parler was the name of the social media platform that came out for a while. And that was their big thing was that there was no censorship. Um, and that was interesting. I never joined Parler and I might be wrong on this. My impression of it was that Parler was specifically for super extreme right wing to go be super extreme right wing. I don't know any liberals that jumped on the platform. I could be wrong about it. Um, but I think that it's been an interesting conversation of, how much responsibility do companies have to censor the content that is coming out and who's in charge of defining what justifies or what counts as hate speech or what counts as misinformation or what counts as irresponsible messaging. And it's easy when someone owns it to point to someone like Zuckerberg or like, um, I can't, whoever owns Spotify, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on their name, but it's easy to point to a company and say, you own this platform. Therefore you're responsible for monitoring the conversation. What happens to that conflict in a decentralized world where anyone from anywhere in the world can show up with any opinion and everybody has ownership? Right. And that is a wonderful question. Um, I have no idea. And I think about it too, because I'm like, who prevents someone from uploading like child pornography or something like that to decentralized platforms? Because that, those are real issues. Um, and I mean, some of the early stages of decentralization was like, I don't know if you were into that or if you remember this, but like BitTorrent was like back in the day when you wanted to like download movies illegally and whatever, BitTorrent was actually a decentral file sharing system. Um, which has since been like just taken over by like Netflix and stuff because like you don't need to illegally download anything anymore. You just use Netflix. Um, but like back in the day, that was like my teenage years. We 
I didn't so much, but I have used BitTorrent to get certain files and stuff. And that that was decentralization too, for the same reason. So, and interestingly enough, Bitcoin to this day is still associated with like illegal activity and money laundering and all these things. Whereas when you look at recent studies and statements from like FBI and others, they have not, um, they cannot confirm it because it's actually easier to track money because in blockchain, it's all public. So you see this goes from here to there to there. So you don't know who owns the address, but before someone gets any like US dollars out of it, they need to send it to a centralized exchange such as Coinbase or so. And Coinbase does know who you are because Coinbase follows the law. So it's, it's actually not that easy to launder money in the blockchain because there is a lot of, um, there's a public track record. So you can only hide so well until you need like actual dollars or another actual currency because the point of crossing crypto to real currency is very regulated these days. That's not like it was like 10 years ago, but like Coinbase wants like your social and everything. And so if you randomly happen to get 3 million in Bitcoin and you try to cash it out, the IRS will ask a few questions and they will know about it. It's it's not quite the world west anymore as it was a few years ago. Um, but to, to going back to your original question with like, censorship and making sure that illegal activity is limited in the space, I think we have to come up with new concepts. I think the traditional concepts that we have will not apply the same way. And I also don't envision that everyone takes a vote on every single post you would do in a virtual platform somewhere. Like, um, I would envision you find like some potential hybrid solutions. You, you make the technology smart from the beginning. So like, the technology would already scan bad words, filter out image filters, that sort of thing. But to, who, to... who decides that? Like Ul someone has ultimate... to be in charge of deciding this is a bad word or this is inappropriate or right. like someone has to be in that, in that place. And that's, I mean, that's been an issue since the beginning of time. Humans don't agree on stuff. You know, right. And that would be very interesting to see if we will be better in Web3. I could imagine, uh, ultimately, whoever provides this platform must have some special access to change things. So like Decentraland and Sandbox, the developers of the platform obviously have more power than me as a landowner in that metaverse. So does that mean that they will do things that I disagree with? Potentially so. Now it's up to their honor code to, to follow what their user base wants to do. Um, and that would be an interesting process to see how much disagreement and agreement we have there and how we deal with that, which is all, again, this is a very fluent process right now because everyone knows the problem. We don't really have a great solution yet. You don't want it to be this bureaucratic thing where every little decision needs to get like a 70% vote from all the members and no one wants to vote, et cetera. Like you don't want to, to duplicate Congress in the metaverse because that's not getting you anywhere. But you're also trying to, to limit the, the human failure as much as you can. And there are so many gaps. That's the, and 
when you hear me say gaps as an entrepreneur, I always think also possibilities. Like I know numerous startups that deal with certain of these gaps. One of them is like ownership verification. How do you actually prove that you own this NFT in a practical way? Because a technician can, like a software developer would know how to look that up. But how would a non software person verify that you own a particular nft and what if the nft is actually a duplicate of another nft but it's a duplicate nft so it looks like the original but it's not and there's a whole bunch of things that could go wrong and i know people working in startups dealing with these kinds of issues so i'm hoping i don't know this because i haven't seen it but i'm hoping someone is working on like um and i'm, I'm assuming sandbox and all those providers are thinking about it too how can we solve the problem of, of like acceptable behavior in platforms that are not centrally managed or how would you manage them in a way that whatever central management you would be required to have is as obedient as possible to the decentral consensus. Um, so far, I've, I'm seeing a lot of optimism. I'm seeing a lot of excitement and a lot of trust as so long as you stand for it so like if you like the good good nft contributors they are not anonymous people they are people that stand there with their name and their address and you can see them you can even like if you really want to you get their phone number and talk to them on the phone and it's not they're not trying to like scam you into something there are lots of scams too there's scams always everywhere but um the People that really care about Web3, NFT, and decentralization are typically open books. Like they're not trying to hide from it or so. Um, the yeah. psychologist part of me really wants to do a personality, um, like a personality study on everyone who's into this and look for the common, like, do they have a common Myers Briggs or Enneagram? Or there, I feel like you have to be optimistic to be in this metaverse zone. And when I hear people talk about it, I wonder sometimes if I am too cynical to be invited to the party. I will gladly invite you to the party. I'll in fact send you a few <laughs> links right after the conversation. Um, so as far as personality goes, I can tell you one thing, it's 90% men. And I think that's just like a God-given design feature that like men are a little bit more prone to like risky, somewhat joyful things. Not that women aren't doing that across the board either. But if you look at like there was a study, I think it was HP or someone back in the 19th, you know, like early computer times. And they did this where they had a group of women and a group of men and they put them both in a room with a computer. And that was when no one knew what a computer is. The women were like, yeah, what am I supposed to do with this? How is this helpful? And the women were like, oh, cool, let's look. What can I do here? You know, like there were just two very different ideas in the genders. And like in a world where political correctness is spelled very high in high, big font letters everywhere, it's dangerous to say these things. But at the same time, I'm seeing it on LinkedIn and everywhere I interact. I have, if I have 100 conversations, 95 of those are with men. And all of the men share similar things. They most of them are in some self-employment type setup. Some most of them have some tech background, um, and there there are commonalities in all of us. And like like kind of like what you said too. Like there's optimism. There is like a certain um, they tolerate risk. 
because it's so connected to crypto, it's usually not people that want like their fixed 2% interest rate every year. Right. Well, and we talked about this on the last conversation too, of not just the biological differences, but the cultural differences of men, especially in this culture, are raised a little more to take risks. And I think we talked about this in the last conversation of guys are taught boys will be boys and girls are taught to be careful. So I think that has a lot to do with it with guys are just naturally from the time they're little boys, we expect them to try things and to make mistakes and to take risks. Mm -hmm. And for girls, we expect them to know all the information before they do it, because it's almost like with guys, we expect them to fuck it up. And for women, we expect them to do it right and to fix it. It's it's a, a weird, um, and I think it's getting a little bit better, but I, I see a lot of that just in upbringing culture of how we look at boys and girls and how we prepare them for the world. Yeah, um, no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, my wife and I are watching Inventing Anna on Netflix these days. And it's very interesting too, because for one, I didn't know this until last night, but it's actually somewhat of a documentary. Like it's a real case that they're showing there. But like one of the guys in the show, it's a bank manager and it's a man. And he essentially, long story short, cut gives this organ, helps this young woman to get like a $40 million loan with nothing to back it up. So he totally screws up in like helping her get this loan, you know, like he's not doing his job properly, if you will. What happens to him? He gets promoted within his company. He like gets like to the next level is now one step higher, makes more money, all the things. What happens to the woman who tried to fraud her way into that? She goes to jail. Now, not saying that fraud is okay and she shouldn't go to jail. Like what she did is wrong, but it just shows you a little bit of like, well, like what you were saying, like men for men, it's okay to screw up because that's, that's looked at as like bravery or something that like, oh, you'll learn from that and learn from your mistakes and that sort of thing. And women for whatever reason, aren't raised into that. On right. that note, I'm actually sad. I don't have a daughter because I have three boys and like, I mean, I try to, to, when I had, if I had girls, I would do the exact same thing, but I'm like, yeah, try it. And if it doesn't work, whatever, you know, like, and talking about that real quick before I forget, I mean, I meant to say this earlier, but like a friend of mine, he in this co-working space, he actually said to me, like with NFTs and metaverse, he was like, yeah, but forget our generation. He has teenage kids and he says his teenage kids meet up in games. They meet up in games to talk to each other. So it's like, so NFTs and the metaverse, that's nothing new to them. That just changes who owns the stuff, but it's already a known environment to them. And I keep thinking that a lot too. Like my oldest son, he, he's five and he saw me transfer cryptocurrency, which we often do with a QR code because it's easier than to type out a long address. And so he sees a QR code on the milk and he's like, Oh, look, we can send money to the milk. No, he doesn't understand that QR code could be anything, but like, I'm like, to him, cryptocurrencies will not be this radical, different thing. It will be very natural to him. And so that's where a lot of this metaverse betting is heading towards as well. That's like, it's not about our generation. The next generation, they will just grow into it. And that's what you're betting on. 
Right. Well, and the other thing that stood out with what you were talking about with it being primarily men and with the ownership aspect, I had this conversation um, not that long ago with a guy where I was explaining this phenomenon um, where men sort of sometimes have this habit, I've noticed, of getting into a what I call my penis is bigger than your penis contest. And it, it is always funny to me that guys do this. And I was talking to them about it and they sort of said like, yeah, you know, I've never really thought about it being a dick measuring contest, but yeah, a thousand percent that happens. And they were talking about from the male perspective, it's almost this idea of you have to own something, whether it's, you're the fastest, you're the smartest, you're the richest, you have the hottest wife, whatever it is, there's this this need for ownership. And so I wonder if that has something to do with men being more inclined to be a part of this, just the idea of being able to own something that no one else owns, if that's sort of the shiny object. That for sure happens. I mean, men, what you're referring to is competition. And my wife and I use it frequently in our raising of the boys like if we want them to, to get to brush their teeth, we just ask who's faster or who can clean up toys faster. You know, like you make it a competition and men just like run to it. They just go like, oh, I want to be faster than so-and-so. What I think is interesting though, sorry to cut you off, but it, it with competition, like I'm an extremely competitive person, but if I compete with someone and I run faster than them, my takeaway is I ran that race faster than them. Whereas guys, it's almost like I'm the fastest. There's a difference between how, at least for me, like I equate it to that specific event. And I've noticed men equate it to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I look at my three boys and like the older two, they're three and five. And like half their their vocabulary is like, yeah, I need the bigger one. I need this to be more than his. Or you know, like it, there's always this, like like my oldest would be like, yeah, but I need more than Lucas does. And you're like, dude, it, it doesn't matter. You're not even hungry. Like you don't need more than him. But there is this this like what you're saying, this macho thinking of like bigger is more. I I mean, the ultimate question is, of course, is is this born into, is this taught? And it's very difficult to answer when you have like, I don't know, like you have a Donald Trump who makes bigger, better and all that, his like campaign slogans. Then you have like a liberal liberal counterpart that denies everything. You you know, like it's a very conflicting world. I do think men are, for well, whatever reason, whether it's been ingrained to them politically, socially, or whatever, men are very prone to it across centuries and across cultures. Like you, you look at men from different cultures in different times in history, and like you see certain behaviors stand out. And I think crypto crypto speaks to that to in a good sense in a good way like crypto is like this idea i'm my own boss the government can't tell me what to do the bank can't tell me what i own what i don't i own this and i do own it and there's no one who can take it from me you know like there are a lot of elements that i believe a lot of men for whatever reason just respond to 
in obvious ways. I gifted my wife an NFT for Christmas and she like reacted with the sort of like, this is either complete nonsense or this is genius. One of the two, she, she wasn't sure where to settle, but um, then like a few weeks later, she goes like, hey, UNICEF has like a children's collection for some charity project. Can I mint an NFT from them? I was like, isn't that interesting how like my wife is now like, just being exposed to it a little bit now leads her to be like, oh, there's something that where she sees use in it and she's interested in doing that. My brother-in-law, her brother, um, he didn't have anything to do with NFTs, but when Budweiser came out with an NFT collection, he was like, oh, hang on, that's my favorite beer. I, I want to have an NFT from them. You know, like there's this like ownership element combined with utility. Utility is another big word in NFT, especially since I know you do marketing and that sort of stuff. Utility is a buzzword that is like everyone has like a, a hate-love relationship with it because everyone promises utility, very few actually provide it well. But it's essentially this whole concept of like what you get out of an NFT. So like if an NFT provides you with a discount on, I don't know, like a real life item, then that is the utility or utility could be that you are part of a club now. I mean, that's again, and I think you're hitting it head on with what you say about men, but like when all the big boys in celebrity circles start buying bored apes as NFTs, then of course you have all the ones that start to get FOMO, fear of missing out, join the club and now they are buying it too and now you have this like almost like a ponzi scheme just everyone trying to up one another which never ultimately works and i i personally i would i i'm i wouldn't fall for it i believe and i would want everyone to buy into something just for that reason because if you don't have value beyond the idea that someone else will have more interest in it than you then things usually don't work out Right. Um, but yeah, I think men are particularly prone to to fall for ownership and owning something someone else doesn't or so, like having yeah, the biggest, I, biggest, best. I think it's both. I think that there is some definite inherent with the way people are wired. And I, I think that there's probably outliers to that. I don't know that there is any universal men are this way, women are this way. I think it's all over the spectrum, but I know even um, like I have girl dogs and my last two roommates I've had, I've had boy dogs and I can tell you there are some clear differences in how the boys act and how the girls act. And my girls are like delicate little angels who, when they go outside, they go find a private tree. Like they're in a corner, like they're very just like quiet, curious and boys just like. I'm going to lift my leg on this. I'm going to lift my leg on that. Like I'm going to own the whole yard. Oh, you just peed there. Well, I'm going to pee on top of it. Cause it's mine now. Right. So there's definitely a difference, um, in how people act, but I think then also culturally we feed into that and we make it something different. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's both. And I think that when it comes to NFTs or any kind of purchase or anywhere that we spend our time and money. I think that there's that aspect of status and inclusivity, which ultimately, I mean, it all goes to that basic human need of just feeling seen and feeling accepted. I think that is at the core of it, what everybody wants. So when it comes to 
NFTs and the metaverse, is this something, because right now it feels like it's something that, um, the more not elite, but maybe the more wealthy are playing with because they have more to risk. It feels like something that if you're really well off, you can invest in the latest advancement of technology. Do you feel like this whole crypto digital world is something that will eventually be available and accessible to someone in a third world country or someone who is homeless or someone who is struggling? Or is this another metric of the the wealthy getting wealthier? Like how how inclusive is this world becoming? So very interesting you bring this up because my one of my two companies I'm involved with, this, the second one is super fast cards, card trading game. Um, and our main user group actually is Indonesian. It's Indonesia and like the, that those islands and they have a different understanding of money. They make like, I don't quote me on this, but like 200 bucks a month or so. And that's a very good salary for them. So they would not on earth spend $200,000 on an NFT. That is just not possible. Same for India. Now, here's the thing, though. They all have phones. They all have computers. And they are all into crypto. Now, is, I, is NFTs like a rich people playing with money kind of thing? I think in some ways it can be, and it is. Like, if you... Buy, if you have a board ape, which is the most expensive NFT collection out there right now, if you have a board ape, it's one of a few things. Either you minted them early, minting is the process of buying them initially, and you were just lucky to have that one because no one can foresee the future. So when you minted this, you were not doing it like, oh yeah, I know that this that me spending $80 now will translate into $200,000 in six months. That's not what happened. So you were mostly lucky in that way. Um, Alternatively, you bought it recently, and then you must have had a lot of money to spend. So either you worked for it really hard, which tentatively would make it unlikely you spend it on something so speculative, or you have another source of revenue or income, or you've just been blessed with money from the beginning. But in either event, um, buying board apes now is a rich people's playground, more or less. Like no one who is like your average salaried worker who doesn't have a big stash of money from another source just happens to buy one of those. However, the NFT world is very, very big. So sure, it's easy to talk about how Adidas and all of those buy bored apes and bored apes cost $300,000. Sure, it's easy to talk about makes flashy headlines. A lot of the NFT trading actually happens in the much more affordable NFTs. And affordable NFTs can be anything from like $15 to like $5,000. And I mean, it, it really depends on what you're trying to get out of it and how you go about it. But there is no minimum bar. Now, naturally, and this is just human behavior, but like naturally, if you buy a more expensive NFT that has more prestige, that will most likely not lose value as quickly or at all compared to like the cheaper ones that don't have a brand name or so. Like there's obviously um, a difference in value development and potential for something. If you buy the most random NFT out there, that may not ever develop. 
in fact, it's funny on LinkedIn, I started the thing where like we started to buy each other's trash collections. So like a lot of people in this field like played around with NFTs and just like created random NFTs that have no purpose or anything. And so you have a bunch of those collections out there and a guy and I, we just bought each other's. So like I bought it for 200 bucks and he bought mine for 200 bucks. And now we can both say that that someone bought our trash collection. Um, but the point is there's a lot of NFTs out there and they're in all kinds of pricing structures. Generally speaking, in NFTs, you are more so if you're looking at it from the perspective of an investor, so you don't really care what you're buying in the sense that like you don't care for the image or the item or so, you just want to sell it for profit later. Um, tentatively, the more expensive one do better just because they are more expensive for a reason and they will go higher for the same reason because they are either popular, prestige, or they have popular people behind them. So when people say like, oh yeah, I want to invest in NFTs, it kind of depends on how you're going about it. Are you doing it to like play around, to have fun? Or do you want to invest money and actually make money with it? If it's the later, you're better off buying like the fancier collections, which started like, like maybe 5,000 or so, like it goes up quickly, but you're, you're having a higher chance of doubling your money spending 5,000 than you're having doubling your money spending 50, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, I think it's, it, there's so much. And I know that we just kind of scratched the surface of this topic, but just to close out, if, what would you tell someone who is kind of new to the NFT world, wants to get started What's the one thing that they should do to get started? That's a loaded question. Um, let me try to be brief, but you should understand what you're doing ultimately. You shouldn't FOMO into things. You shouldn't buy something just because everyone is buying it. In fact, in crypto and in NFTs, often, not always, again, don't, Know what you're doing. Just because I say something doesn't mean you should do it. I'm just saying there are certain patterns, but this is in any market. This is the stock market too. Warren Buffett says it too. Like you're basically, when you're doing the opposite of what people are doing, good example is right now because of Russia and Ukraine, people are selling stock and crypto because they are afraid that it will fall further because of economic implications and so on and so forth. Well, now is a great time to buy. Like if you want to buy something, now's the time to do it. Everyone is selling, so prices go down. So if you want to buy, now's a better time than not. Um, but that comes back to what I said initially. Just real is, quick so we don't get in trouble later. At the time that he is saying this, we are in February of 2022. So just keep that in mind when okay. you're listening to this. Yes. If it's not February, um, keep that in mind. I don't want right. to be given advice so, at the end of the year for February now. That is true. That is true. Right now, February 2022, we have bear markets across all assets, like except real estate probably and gold and oil or so, you know, but like stock prices have been falling since the beginning of the year. Crypto has been doing its own thing, but tentatively going down. Everything is falling because we live in a fairly insecure political and social environment which is okay, like it just is what it is. But point is, now is a good time to buy because now it's low. Now it can go lower, sure. If you, are, if you want to invest, don't invest money you can't afford to lose. Like don't invest 
$5,000. And if it's 2000 tomorrow, be pissed because, oh, you lost three. You didn't lose anything. You lose when you sell. So just don't sell tomorrow. If you're convinced that what you're investing in will be worth more in the future, then you should have like the stamina to ride it out a few years. Like give it three to five years is what they say in the stock market. And I would say in NFTs and crypto, it's no different. Like if you think this has potential, then you need to give it a few years because things don't happen overnight. And especially with something that's so new and speculative, such as NFTs, there is no point trying to get rich quickly. So basic advice about NFTs, which applies to all asset classes, but just know what you're doing, do your own research, understand blockchain, you know, like know what you're buying and know what it costs you, what and why you're buying into it, like have a, a thesis for it. Don't just buy because, oh, everyone buys. Like, sure, people buy and there are lots of scams too. And people buy into lots of scams or um, other issues arise. So just know what you're doing, invest in yourself, do the research. Um, and then you don't have to be ignorant and blind over what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. I really appreciate it. If you have thoughts, comments, questions, shoot us an email at embracetheish at gmail.com or hang out with us online at successfulish.com or Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn at embracetheish. Success and failure, none of opposite ends. Curveball hits, gotta know where to bend. The attitude will affect destination. Interview determines when you're gonna make it. Live between successes, makes life rich. Live in every moment, successfulish. Live between successes, makes life rich. Live in every moment, successfulish. Hey, successfulish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back. Reinvest hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Successfulish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of see. I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back. Reinvest hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Hey. All this weight on my arms need both flex. In this race, but behind need most steps. Had to show the learning curve, hope I don't crash. Hit your nerves when reserves got low cash. When I fail, realize that it won't last. You made it through in the past, just Look back, successful list. You can see how the contrast fires and wins. Use the past and the bounce back. You can never win if you never go and do it. Failure is a hard road, rarely ever cruising. Embracing all my wins with a handful of losing. Expect the drought season when the plan's going fluent. I can never really feel it's all how you view it. It's all a lesson, just depends how you use it. Get all the data and keep it all exclusive. Never ending journey in the growth is therapeutic. My identity is not in what you see. I am the better me. Mistakes others make, I see. Have a teacher me. Compare yourself to others is an insult to tragedy. We will make unique, gotta use again collectively. Broke down my goals in a few little. Toastum. Can't take them back because you already spoke them. Easily regressive, you don't stay focused. Focus, live between success and your moments. Successfully. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of see. I'm successfully. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successfulish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. I'm successfulish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successfulish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions of See, I'm successfulish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieved. Successfully. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve.